Great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. Honored to have you along for the ride. Uh, we are in the second week of a series called This Is The Way, which of course takes its inspiration from The Mandalorian. If you don't know what that is, you'll be all right. It's fine. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's all about what it looks like not just to believe in Jesus, but to actually follow him. Uh, and in case you're joining us for the first time, you should know that last week I began this set of talks by making what I think is a really interesting observation. It, it goes like this. Uh, you can be a Christian and not follow the way of Jesus. In other words, you can be fully convinced of who Jesus is and not be committed to following the way of life that he modeled. And, and if any of that describes where you've been at some point along your faith journey, then I'd be willing to bet that when you were first introduced to Jesus, like in Sunday school or in church, maybe during your childhood, you were taught a bunch of stuff that you were supposed to believe and not so much a new way to live. And, and if that has been your experience, uh, you should know first that you're in good company. Um, but also you should know, and, and we talked about this at length last week, but that was not the experience of the first Christians. For them, following Jesus wasn't just about believing something. It was about learning a whole new way of life, a, a way of being and doing and serving and loving and, and even becoming. Those first disciples thought of themselves as Jesus' apprentices. And they didn't just want to know what Jesus knew. They wanted to be the same sort of person that Jesus was. You, you might even say that if we had approached those first Christians about our present reality, that they, would say, they would say to us, well, believing in Jesus is how you become a Christian. That's true. But following Jesus is how you be a Christian. And, and hold your emails. I know my grammar isn't correct. Some few of you are in the grammar police. That's cool. My mom was an English teacher. I was well-trained, right? But, but you get my point. As Jesus intended it, Christianity is supposed to be an entire approach to life and not just a set of ideas to affirm. And Jesus actually said as much to his first disciples at the end of his most famous sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. One day Jesus hikes his disciples up to the top of a mountain somewhere near the Sea of Galilee and he teaches them what his way looks like. And then at the end of all of this instruction, he tells them this, sort of as a summary. He says, enter through the narrow gate. He said, for wide is the gate and broad is the road. You could also say way. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. And then he says, but small is the gate and narrow the way that leads to life. And only a few find it. And Jesus isn't talking about eternal destiny here. He's saying, listen, guys, the way to the life you really want, a life of peace and love and self-control and purpose and fulfillment and contentment and thriving marriages and restored relationships and flourishing faith, that life, well, that you're not going to find that by following what comes to you naturally. You're, you're going to find it by following my way, the narrow way, and my way is counterintuitive, and my way is countercultural, and that's, that's why many people don't find it. It's available to everyone, but many people don't find it. But, but if you can find it, if you'll order your life after mine, if you'll be like me, then you'll find the life that you were made to live. I want to be your savior, but I also want to be your teacher, and I want to teach you a new way 
to be human. So follow me. This is the way. All right, so now that said, for the next couple weeks, what I want to do is look at some of the specifics of what following Jesus actually looks like. And with our time together today, I want to talk about how following Jesus actually requires us to adopt a different set of assumptions about how the world should work, different than the ones that we've previously held. And let, let, me, let me explain. You, you probably never thought about it in these terms, but pretty much since the dawn of human history, in like almost every culture and civilization all around the world, there has been a particular way that things have been done. And the similarities when you study the ancient cultures are pretty amazing. They all had this set of rules about how things were supposed to work, and the rules were shared. I mean, there were more than four, but I just want to show you four of them. It included things like this. Every culture would say, might makes right. Money or gold equals power. The ends justify the means. And then probably most profound of all, in life there are winners and losers. In other words, um, if you're the biggest and strongest, if you're the most powerful, then you pretty much get to do whatever you want. You can bully everyone else around. And if you have the most financial resources, well, well then you have the most ability to influence things to your preferences. And, um, and uh, you know, as far as this ends justify the means thing, you know, people just, we kind of pick up, we need to chase what's best for us even if it isn't best for everyone else. The ends justify the means. And finally, in this life, there are winners and there are losers. And um, you want to be a winner and not a loser, right? And so now, let's be honest. If you think about it, if all we can see is all there is, like if all there is to life is this life, then there really is no advantage to living by any rules other than these. Say it a different way. If the value system into which you and I were indoctrinated as children, the same value system we now work in and go to school in and compete in, if that's our only option, then our only choice really is to strive in order to thrive or, or strive in order to survive. And I got to give Dr. Zeus the state 25 cents now because I rhyme. But anyway, yeah, because that's our only option. This is a win-lose world, right? And in this win-lose world, there are some people who can compete better than other people. And so, you know, for us, we just have to do everything we can to sort of claw our way up the social ladder and fight to stay there and then maybe go to church on a Sunday and wear a cross and sing some songs and ask God to help us win. Like, if all we see is all there is, then that's kind of our only option. But see, the good news is that was not the message of Jesus. In fact, he repeatedly affirmed that all we see is not all there is. And consequently, not only is the way of the world not the only way, it's not the best way. And then Jesus came and modeled another way, one that's far better for us, far better for our families, far better for our communities, and far better for our world. It's a way, though, that takes us in a completely different direction from our culture. It's a way in which we choose to organize our lives around an entirely different set of values and assumptions. It's actually a way that some of the first Christians would later call the way of the cross. And here's the thing, the way of the cross, well, it's so completely different than the way the world tends to work that even Jesus' closest disciples, like those first 12 guys who lived with him for three years, heard him teach, witnessed miracles, watched him live, watched him interact with people, they really struggled to embrace this. 
And in fact, um, just as an example, consider what happened right near the end of Jesus' life on the night he was betrayed by one of his closest friends, one of his first disciples. It was in a garden called Gethsemane just outside the old city of Jerusalem. And Jesus had just returned from praying to God. He'd been wrestling with God. And he had engaged his disciples in conversation when according to a man named Matthew's account of, of his life, and Matthew was there that night, Matthew tells us that, well, Judas... One of the 12, like one of the inner circle, arrived. And with him, look at this, was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Chief priests and elders of the people, those are the professional religious leaders who saw Jesus as a threat. So they've basically got this crowd to go and confront Jesus. And again, Judas is identified as one of the 12. Like, he's one of Jesus' closest friends. He'd been following Jesus for years. He'd been paying attention to Jesus. And during that time, I think it's important for us to know that Judas had become absolutely convinced that Jesus was Israel's long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the Deliverer, the one who God would one day send to his people. See, like so many others in that moment, Judas didn't understand the way of the cross. In fact, I can't prove it to you, but I'm fairly convinced that in this moment, Judas believed that he could actually accelerate the timeline of Jesus' mission as he understood it by betraying Jesus to Rome. And, and here's why I say that. I mean, Judas had seen Jesus escape from religious leaders like over and over and over again. He would have reasoned that there's no way that Jesus would have ever been captured that night. And so I think Judas betrayed Jesus to the Jewish religious leaders, hoping to spark a Messiah-led military revolution against Rome. He wanted the Jews to win, and he wanted Rome to lose. But see, as it turned out, that night, that wasn't the way. And notice that the crowd came armed with swords and clubs. And that's interesting if you think about it. I mean, people, people generally bring swords and clubs to a fight. And so apparently... The religious leaders had a sense that they needed to be ready for some armed resistance. Okay, so check out what happened next. Matthew told us, now the betrayer, Judas, had arranged a signal with the crowd. He said, the one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And then Jesus responded, friend. Do what you came for. And the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And for some reason, I love that Jesus addresses Judas as friend here. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think I may have chosen a significantly less gracious designation for him in this moment. I might have even said something derogatory about his mama. I'm just saying, don't judge, right? But that's me. That's not Jesus, right? I mean, faced with betrayal, he said, what did Jesus do? Betrayal at the deepest level. He demonstrates Kindness, understanding, maybe even compassion, which is interesting if you think about it. Because, I mean, Jesus had more than a few other options that night. I mean, just, just a question. What could Jesus have done in this moment? I mean, he's Jesus. He could have done anything, right? But it seems like he chooses to do nothing. It almost seems like he chooses to lose. Anyway, um, Matthew recorded that in this moment, Jesus' disciple Peter, who's the oldest disciple, definitely the most impulsive disciple, he's standing nearby, he's watching this scene, and he reacts in anger. Matthew tells us that 
With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And I would argue that in this moment, Peter did what the way of the world had taught him to do. He responded to a show of force with force. He powered up. He wanted to win. He was seized by emotion. He took his sword and he cut off an ear, which I'm not sure accomplished much, but that's what he did. And Jesus immediately corrected him, not just because of his bad aim, but he corrected him because this is not the way. He said it to him this way. He said, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. It's almost like, and he's not just talking to Peter. The other guys are listening. And he's like, Peter, guys, you've got to understand. You've got to get this. Pulling a sword in situations like this doesn't really fix anything. It's not helpful. And perhaps more importantly, it's not my way. And then as Jesus continued to speak, he reminded his first disciples that in spite of what it seemed like in the moment, he had everything well under control. He said this, do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, guys, it's not like I don't have options. I'm Jesus. <laughs> like I could say the word in this whole situation would just go away. Thousands of ninja angels are standing at the ready. And we know they were ninja angels because of a subtle nuance in the Greek. I picked it up in seminary years ago. No, I'm just kidding. No ninjas. You're like, ninjas? That's awesome. Anyway, I imagine Jesus standing there looking at his disciples thinking, somebody please tell me that you guys know this isn't my way. I mean, do you think that this is what I've been teaching you? Things go wrong, you start swinging? Guys, I'm about to unleash a revolution that's going to change the world. It's a revolution that's going to eventually overwhelm and outlast the Roman Empire. Greatest military superpower the world had ever seen. They would never have been able to get their heads around that. But Jesus is like, it will overwhelm and outlast the Roman Empire. And it's a revolution that you guys are supposed to help lead. But you've got to understand, it's not a revolution of the sword, and it's not a revolution that plays by the rules of this world. It's not a revolution that believes that might makes right, and money means power, and the ends justify the means. It's a revolution that's upside down in strategy. It puts others first. It's a revolution of servants. It's a revolution of love. This is my way. Follow me. But I'm telling you, Jesus' disciples, they couldn't see it that night in the garden. And before, you know, I cast too much shade on them, I don't think I would have got it either. That night, every single one of Jesus' first disciples opted out of the Jesus way. They unfollowed Jesus, and they stepped back into the win-lose way of our world. That's why they ran when Jesus was taken into custody. That's why Peter denies that he had ever met Jesus. I mean, this week I was thinking about it. It's almost like when Jesus was arrested, his first disciples were being tested. And they failed that test because they chose to view his arrest through the lens of the win-lose way of our world. And then a few hours later, as Jesus hung on that cross, from their perspective, their suspicions were affirmed. Jesus lost. And so they ran away because, I mean, who would choose to follow a loser. Who would choose to lose? But then, as many of you know, a few days later, um, 
after they had come face to face with something unbelievable yet undeniable, the resurrected Jesus, they came back. They came roaring back because they realized something that they had failed to see before, that Jesus had been serious when he told them that he was a king like no other king who'd been sent by God to establish something brand new on planet earth. And these same disciples who initially ran went on to take the way of the cross, the way of Jesus to their world and to our world. And if you think about it, that's why we're here 2,000 years later. In fact, and I find this absolutely fascinating, the global symbol of the Christian faith, almost since the very beginning, it wasn't a sword and it wasn't a trophy. It was a cross. And in fact, I love this shot because this is a cross that was erected in the emperor's entrance in the Roman Colosseum. In the first century, the cross didn't represent a salvation decision. It represented a completely different way of living. In fact, check out how an early pastor named Paul articulated it to a group of people living in Greece, and they had questions. So he writes them a letter, and he says this, For Christ, for Jesus, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the good news. But not with wisdom and eloquence. He's like, not just me being smart and fancy with my words. Because if I did that, then the cross of Christ would be emptied of its power, and he goes on, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And I'm telling you, this was a letter, it was written, or it was read aloud because most people couldn't read, but the first people who heard these words would have had no category for what Paul was trying to say because the idea that a cross represented power and authority made no sense to them. They would be like, wait a minute, Paul, Jesus died on a cross like the Romans killed him, and now you want us to worship him? And what exactly do you mean when you say the cross is the power of God? Paul, crosses don't have power. Crosses are a symbol of powerlessness. In fact, if somebody's crucified, they've been defeated. They're over. They lost. And it's like they never even existed. They're only an example for why you don't cross Rome. I'm telling you, Paul's words here highlight the otherness of the way of Jesus because it's so unnatural and it's so rarely modeled then and now. We almost never see it, but if you do see it, I'm telling you, you're going to want to stop and stare because it's beautiful and it's powerful. In fact, I mean, think about this. The way the cross is so powerful that, you know, and again, this is worth repeating, that the cross became the global symbol of Christianity all over our world. People wear crosses around their neck every day. And it's so strange if you think about it. I mean, this old symbol of suffering and shame became the emblem of the Christian faith. Like, why? Well, those first followers knew that more than anything else that they had available to them in ancient times, the cross captured the other way or the otherness of the way of Jesus, a way of living that's always going to feel risky and never intuitive. In fact, I think that's why Jesus looked at his followers one day. Check this out. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. We got to remember when Jesus said this, he hadn't died on a cross yet. None of those first disciples would have understood that he was going to eventually offer them salvation from sin. To them, the cross represented losing. 
And they would have thought, come on, Jesus, if we take up our crosses daily, then like we're choosing to lose every day. We're moving in the wrong direction. And if they had raised that question to Jesus, he would have looked back at them and said, yep, you're getting it. And I, and I find this really interesting, but do you know why Jesus told his followers they had to do this like daily? I think it's because he knew that for all of us, we would be tempted every day to opt out of the Jesus way and return to the way of our world. I mean, every time something doesn't go their way, every time something doesn't go our way, every time somebody doesn't agree with them or agree with us, every time somebody says something hateful to them or to us, they and we would be tempted to leave the Jesus way because we want to win. We want to come out on top. We want to look good. But Jesus invited them. And Jesus invited us to live in a completely new way, his way, a way in which you actually win, you actually build the sort of life that you really want to live in by losing. And before I let you go, um, I want to give you a bit of homework once again this week because it's the fall, school's back in session, right? And there's, you know, I'm not going to follow up with you individually, so if you choose not to do it, whatever, no big deal. But just for fun. Um, and, and again, just like last week, um, whether or not you're a Jesus follower, uh, you're welcome to play along. It's not going to hurt, I promise. Um, anyway, here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to challenge you to carry another question with you for the next week. And before I show you what it is, um, and you'll understand why when you see it, I need to give you a couple of disclaimers because I'm not talking about how this question might apply to the future of our country or the war in Ukraine or our trade relationships with China. I want you to consider this question personally, like in your life and in your relationships right now. And, and, and one more thing, um, I'm not suggesting that you re-engage in a toxic relationship or stay in a toxic relationship. This isn't that. So please take those extremes off the table or you'll be tempted to not even try what I'm about to show you. Okay, so that's it. Here's what I want you to do. This week, whenever you find yourself disagreeing with someone or in a conflict at home or at school or at work or really wherever you are, I want you to ask yourself, like in the moment when that tension rises, what would choosing to lose look like in this situation? And as I wrote this on my notes, I just wrote in the margin, ouch, <laughs> ouch. Like what would it look like for you this week to choose to let the other person win? Now your assignment is not to do that, just so we're clear, right? Your assignment is just to consider what would it look like. I want, I want you to see the tension that we live in. Not you live in, we live in. What would it look like? Because I'm telling you, that's what it means to follow Jesus. What would it look like to let the other person go first, even though you were there first? What would it look like to let them take credit, even though credit doesn't belong to them? What would it look like to defer to them, to let them do what they want to do and not what you want them to do. And before you object, I need you to think about something. It goes like this. There is a big difference between choosing to lose and losing. Because choosing to lose does not make you a loser. But choosing to lose will make you more like Jesus. And here's why. Uh, choosing to lose is not a sign of weakness. It actually requires a lot of strength, unnatural strength. Some would say supernatural strength. And that's why when we see it, 
we want to stop and stare because it's so unusual, it's so compelling, it's so beautiful. I'm convinced that that often this choosing to lose is what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. And I know, like, it's, it's hard to sort all this out with family and how does this work, you know, with my finances, and, and it can be complicated, but I'm telling you, more often than not, again, this is the way. So one more time, what would choosing to lose look like in this situation? And we'll pick it up there next week. But for now, uh, if you're in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand, and I'll close our time together in prayer. Uh, one more thing, if, you, if you're joining us today and um, it's just been a stretch, maybe it was a bad week, a bad month, a bad year, um, bad season, and you would just love to connect with someone, I think maybe you could pray with you. We've got some friends that will be wearing lanyards under the screen to the left, and they'd love to meet you uh, in just a few moments after the service. But for the rest of us, let me close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us as we are. Thank you for saving us not because we are good, but because you are good. Thank you that we can enter a restored relationship with you simply by placing our faith in what Jesus accomplished on our behalf on the cross. And thank you for the invitation to learn a new way of life right here and right now, a way in which we can choose to lose and in so doing bring a little bit of heaven here. We pray that as your spirit works in us, your kingdom would come and your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We want to fight. We want to fight with love to make things more like you want them to be. And I pray that when people see your love reflected through us, a no-strings-attached, sacrificial, generous, extravagant love, they would stop and stare, not at us, but at Jesus. And so thank you. Thank you for this community. Thank you for preserving the words of your son. And thank you for the way of the cross. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.